listening to Temporary Circumstances. I'm your host, Alina Sowers, a licensed professional counselor in Ohio. And I'm your co-host, Cora Mayfield, also a licensed professional counselor in Ohio. In this podcast, we will discuss many uncommon topics on all matters mental health. The views and opinions expressed here do not reflect the agencies that we work for. Today, we're going to talk about DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. DBT is an empirically supported behavioral therapy, and it was developed by Marsha Linehan. It was a treatment that was used for working with borderline personality disorder and or with individuals who were chronically suicidal. We have expanded DBT to work with a number of other issues as well today. So the primary goal with DBT isn't to suppress maladaptive thoughts, feelings, or behaviors, but to create a life that any reasonable person would find worth living. So that may mean finding skills or ways to handle some of those thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in a way that becomes comfortable and healthy. So First, sometimes people get confused with the term dialectical and what that means. The term dialectical in this context means to have more than one position or belief that can be true and valid at the same time, even if it seems like it's in complete opposition. This this belief in therapy would look like gaining an understanding of the situation as a whole in order to understand the parts or perspectives. So a therapist may ask questions to understand how things change under different perspectives and help the client view the situation as a whole and act according to their personal values and beliefs as a whole, not just within the one piece of the situation that they're able to see in that moment. So one of the examples that we use in therapy to try to explain this dialectical view is the concept of plaid. So a lot of times we talk about people having black and white thinking and needing to live more in the gray. But to take a dialectical approach, you would say life is plaid. There's many pers- many different perspectives that could be all kinds of different colors, and they're all true and valid, and they often will cross with each other and affect each other in different ways, but they don't necessarily blend into gray. So a more real life example would be sometimes people are in relationships with someone who they would say, quote, is toxic for them. And oftentimes we think if this person's toxic, why are you staying around them? And we can think of lots of different reasons why one would want to leave this person to be more healthy, to feel more safe, to get more accomplished towards their goals, whatever that might be. But there's not often reasons that we can think of off the top of our heads why someone would choose to stay with that person. So the question I would ask is, can you think of a reason that is an adaptive reason why someone would want to stay with someone who is toxic? And that reason could be something along the lines of, the kids and needing or finances to, or finances, right. Or f- having a safe plan in order to leave someone who is toxic. All of those are super valid reasons to be staying with a toxic person, even though, you know, they're toxic. So that's the idea of a dialectical. 
So traditional DBT organizes therapeutic strategies into protocols and creates a structure in therapy that can keep treatment on track for complex clients requiring a higher amount of mental health services, often due to frequent crisis management and risk of suicide. So what I'm meaning by this is sometimes there's clients who either have one diagnosis or comorbid diagnoses or no diagnoses, but there's so many things going on in their life that it feels like chaos and each session can present a new crisis. And that crisis can be an interpersonal crisis, or it can be suicidal thoughts. It can be thoughts of self-harm. It can be addiction-related. But it almost seems like every week there's a new crisis that we're trying to problem-solve. And that can even become exhausting for the therapist. It becomes distressing and difficult to try to manage and still move towards the goals of solving the initial mental health issues. DBT creates this very highly structured approach that it can be helpful in making progress towards mental health goals while also managing the crisis. And a lot of times in a traditionally DBT like role or what it would be considered real full DBT, there'll be multiple therapy therapists involved in the treatment of one person. Now, like Melina said, we've adapted this, so that's not always the case. But because we have this structure and protocol, there's an agreement with the therapist and the client on how therapies, what therapy is going to look like. So DBT typically involves individual therapy, and then it can also involve group skills training phone consultations for clients as needed, and weekly peer consultation for the therapists. So if we were going to a traditional or comprehensive DBT program, you might have all three of those modes of treatment included in your treatment plan. So you may have an individual therapist that you see for individual goals, a group therapy therapist that you're meeting to get get some of the DBT skills, plus someone who's kind of a case manager that helps with crisis or chronic issues like that. That's not always the case. And I would venture to say that's often not the case now when people see someone for DBT, that's going to be one person. And perhaps not all modes will be offered. So that's a conversation to have with your therapist of what that might look like. Group therapy, though, is pretty common for DBT. Um, And of course, group therapy is also common to go hand in hand with individual therapy and other therapies as well. So as I mentioned earlier, DBT is very, it has a protocol and it has a way things are handled. And the first part of DBT is called pre-treatment. And this stage, we don't even consider this part of DBT treatment at all. It's something that really should be done in every time a client comes in with a therapist, and that is discussing and agreeing on treatment goals and the treatment modality, and the client is offered some treatment options. And if DBT is an option at this point, that would be explained to the client as far as what it's going to look like, what the role of the therapist is, what's expected of the client themselves, 
And something that's very special to DBT is that it requires voluntary consent for treatment. There's not, it's not coerced consent. It's not being institutionalized against someone's will and participating in DBT. It doesn't work that way. Someone has to agree to DBT therapy. So while there's consent for treatment for any type of mental health treatment whatsoever, DBT is asking that the client understands what they're embarking on and that they'll do their best to buy in and participate fully in the treatment. So stage one is what most people think of when they think of DBT therapy. And there's an order and a priority to what happens in stage one. And the first thing, the first priority is targeting any behaviors that need to be dealt with to reduce the lethality, such as suicidal or homicidal thoughts and actions. The next step is to target behaviors that could interfere with treatment. And these could be behaviors of the therapist and it could be behaviors of the client. So this is where we really talk about what do you need to get out of your own way to do therapy and to come to therapy? What do you need from the therapist to help you be fully invested? After that, then we talk about the basic needs. What do you need, such as do you need health care, like health care, or do you need, or do you need help finding housing? Or do you need help finding food? What are those basic needs that have to be met in order for you? to be able to really get into the therapy. And then we get to the basic skills of DBT that people really think of. Those are emotion regulation, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, and mindfulness skills focusing on reducing judgment and increasing awareness and effectiveness. And then behavior management other than self-punishment, such as self-directed violence. DBT prioritizes issues in this order, giving space in therapy to manage these issues as needed for each individual. So for example, not all clients who receive DBT therapy are suicidal or have homicidal thoughts, and they may not need those interventions. But many clients can benefit from emotional regulation, distress tolerance, interpersonal skills training, and mindfulness. So to explain those skills a little bit further, because this really is like the, the meat and potatoes of DBT, emotion regulation skills training include cognitive and behavioral strategies to reduce maladaptive or unwanted emotional reactions and the behaviors occurring in response to those intense emotions. Distress tolerance teaches impulse control and self-soothing techniques to manage crisis without turning to maladaptive or unhealthy coping mechanisms, such as substance use, attempting suicide, or other self-directed violence. Interpersonal effectiveness skills include assertiveness training to achieve the objective, but focuses on preserving relationships and self-respect. Mindfulness skills focus on being aware of the here and now and being non-judgmental to observe the immediate situation and participate appropriately. If you've ever been in DBT therapy or you're familiar with DBT, the idea of observe and participate is very important to that DBT mindset. Stage two therapy goals are to have a non-traumatizing emotional experience and connection to the environment. 
So this is a particularly important step for clients with post-traumatic stress responses, but it can be helpful for anyone who is triggered by external stimuli. This is exposure work, and DBT encourages efficiency at stage one skills before advancing to stage two. So with exposure, sometimes we have that intense emotional reaction and difficulty in regulating and managing the distress. So if we go back to stage one and we really focus on the skills of emotion regulation and how to tolerate the distress of those intense emotions and then go into an exposure therapy, we're learning to manage triggers and our response to them. Stage three builds on all those skills previously learned and targets self-respect, self-confidence, and a sense of morality and achieving an acceptable quality of life. It's really about understanding one's personal values and living a value-filled life. Stage four is something that not everybody works on and sometimes isn't worked on in therapy, but in with other resources. It's more existential in nature and targets increased capacity for freedom, joy, and spiritual fulfillment. Progress through those four stages can be tailored to the needs of each individual. They're not always linear. They oftentimes overlap. For example, the skills learned in stage one are reviewed and practiced as stage as clients move through the rest of the stages. I do think it's important to mention here that for this treatment approach or any treatment approach that's at least somewhat structured, I think it's important for us as clients to really give that process a chance and go through the full process, whatever it may be. So with EMDR, a lot of times we might instruct the client to just at least give the whole process a chance before making a decision if they want to go back and do more EMDR sessions. And I get the sense that it's similar with DBT. You want to at least be introduced through all of these stages so that you really know what the process actually looks like and what it can do for you. Because I think sometimes people may get started in a particular type of therapy, but then decide, well, maybe I already know how to do certain skills, or maybe a particular skill is not as helpful as they had hoped. And that's when it's really important to continue and see what else that treatment modality entails um, and not kind of give up on it right away, but, but give it a chance and see what that full process looks like. Yeah, along those same lines, I should mention that this is hard. It is hard work. It is hard work for the therapist. It is really hard work for the client. It's very involved and takes working on it, not just while you're in therapy. But as a therapist, we know it's really hard. So when you get to something that's hard, If you can just lean in and push through that difficulty, that's when you get the biggest rewards from DBT. But we know it's hard. I would even go so far to say that when it gets hard, using those new interpersonal skills that, uh, that you've learned to express that difficulty to the therapist so that they can help you find a way to lean in and help you find a way to better understand and use that skill. I think that's probably one of the really important parts of DBT is to be open and honest with your therapist about how you're feeling at each step. 
And Alina mentioned that some of these things might, might not feel effective and you might feel like you know some of this. The point of DBT, especially in the group, the skills groups, is to go over each skill with each participant at least twice. So as they go through each skill and then go through it again, they want everybody to have exposure to not just it being described and kind of trying it, but actually having a good understanding of it and trying it again. So it really is important once you embark on that DBT journey, not to give up too soon and really, really communicate with your therapist, your thoughts there and not just stop coming. So I know we mentioned earlier that DBT was initially developed for the purposes of treating individuals who may struggle with suicidal ideation, but is there anything special about the way that DBT goes about treating suicidal ideation in comparison to other treatment protocols? The dialectical perspective, we're looking at something like suicide thoughts, suicide attempts or gestures as a coping skill for something that seems like it is too much to handle. We're not necessarily looking at this as bad behavior. It may not be the most productive way to handle this, but it is a way to handle it. So we're looking more towards those skills of emotion regulation, of being able to handle those emotions and handle the extreme intense emotions in a different way and then distress tolerance, tolerating the distress of those emotions in a different way to find a different outcome. So that dialectical perspective, again, somebody can think suicide is the only answer and also not want to die. Those are two things that seem like they're opposing each other, but in reality, those can both be valid and true. Helping someone find a different solution other than the permanence of suicide is the point of DBT. So DBT, as I've described it here, is what we would consider traditional or comprehensive DBT. Many therapists who are trained in DBT adapt the program to fit their practice in the client's needs. So, for example, if someone is the only DBT trained therapist in a practice, it's unlikely that all of the modalities are available. It's important to understand how comprehensive the treatment is when you go into it. It's not to say a less comprehensive treatment is less valuable or less beneficial, more that it's important to understand what you should expect and what's expected of you and what ex the expectation is of your time. As Alina mentioned, DBT is most well known for the research supporter, supporting the use of DBT with borderline personality disorders and people who are at a high risk of suicide or self-directed violence but there's also strong evidence to support the use of DBT in treatment of other diagnoses, including substance use disorder, binge eating disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and bipolar disorder. A 2020 article in the Journal of Eating Disorders found that DBT therapy has comparable results to CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, in the treatment of binge eating disorders with 69% improvement at the time of treatment and 65% with sustained improvement at follow-up. I know it seems like being the same as CBT is, is kind of disappointing and that 
if it's the same, why not do the less involved treatment? But if you're thinking of somebody with comorbid disorders, such as borderline personality disorder and binge eating disorder, or maybe a substance use disorder and binge eating disorder, or bipolar disorder and binge eating disorder, having a treatment that is effective with both of those things and one that may be more effective with borderline personality disorder than CBT and equal to CBT with binge eating disorder, these kinds of stats and statistics are really important. These statistics do show, I think, how treatable some of these disorders are. Of course, if we're doing the right treatment and the client is invested, as Cora mentioned earlier, and the therapist is well-trained. But I think it does show, you know, 69%, that's almost 70% improvement. That's huge. Another article from 2015 in the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychopharmacology found that there was a higher attendance and commitment to therapy in DBT than other psychotherapy treatment options for adolescents. And these adolescents were diagnosed with bipolar disorders, indicating that DBT may be an important addition to the treatment plan for adolescents. So the study is really showing that if an adolescent is newly diagnosed to bipolar disorder, a therapy like DBT, which requires such intense buy-in, can help them stay on track not only with their psychotherapy, but also with their pharmacology treatment, which leads to a better outcome in the long run for treatment of their bipolar disorder. The same study reported reduced depressive symptoms, reduced suicide attempts in the clients treated with DBT, in addition to pharmacology, than with other psychotherapy options. And a study from 2010 in the American Journal of Drug and Alcohol Abuse found that DBT-assisted clients with comorbid borderline personality and substance use disorders and helped decrease the use of the substance. I think that what all of these are coming back to and that really what DBT is intended for is for clients, regardless of the diagnosis, who have a very intense emotional and behavioral reaction to any kind of trigger. And they are having the the way they're responding to those triggers is not the way they really want to. So, for example, in the use, the substance use study, if these people are self-medicating with substance use, DBT helps the underlying problem of the distress tolerance and the emotion regulation to reduce the coping mechanism of using substance. The same is true of the binge eating disorder, the very lethal and problematic behaviors such as suicide and self-directed violence. While DBT skills can be taken apart and used in lots of different eclectic therapies. If you want true DBT therapy or even an adaptive DBT therapy, it's important to find somebody who has been trained in DBT. Thanks for listening to Temporary Circumstances. Find us on Instagram and leave us a review wherever you found us. 